This is an ABC podcast. Michael Lippmann loved playing rugby union. He loved being part of a team, but he also loved the physicality of the game. If he got knocked around, even knocked out, he just wanted to be back out there proving himself again. In the course of his professional career, Michael was knocked unconscious more than 30 times. And he suffered countless other knocks to the head in tackles and collisions, the kind of head trauma which is now known to be very damaging to the brain. But for most of Michael's rugby career, head trauma wasn't taken seriously. Early in his career, while playing for Bristol in England, Michael was knocked out cold and it was caught on video. Later, he watched as his teammates and coaches rolled around laughing as they watched him struggling to get up, falling down, then staggering to his knees, trying to crawl after the ball. Today, Michael can't really remember some of his biggest games. Two years ago, he was diagnosed with early-onset dementia and probable CTE. CTE is a brain condition that's caused by repeated blows to the head and it impacts memory, decision-making and emotional regulation. CTE is degenerative and there's no known cure. Michael and his wife Frankie have found that there are many former sports people and their families in a situation like theirs. And together, Michael and Frankie have written a book called Concussion about their experience. Hi, Michael. Hello, Sarah. That's a hell of an introduction. <laughs> Thank you. How does it feel hearing your life described like that? Oh, yeah, look, it's a, it's a short synopsis, but um, look, I'm 42 and, you know, life is, uh, is certainly different now to what it was even two years ago. Three, four years ago, you know, it, it's it's a lot different now from being a, a breadwinner, someone who's financially not troubled whatsoever, um, very, very independent, but then, you know, now, so right now I'm, I'm, I'm a family man, I do the best I can with our business and I, I do a lot of the cooking, the cleaning, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of work within the business to try and make myself you know, feel a little bit, little bit better, and being able to contribute more financially. Um, but going from a professional rugby player into, you know, a stay-at-home dad is is a hell of a transition. When you sit down to have an hour-long chat like the one we're about to have, Michael, what are you worried about? Like, what what are you scared might happen? I'm probably scared of saying the wrong thing, <laughs> you know, or saying saying something that's inappropriate. Or saying something that I shouldn't have said. And so, how do you prepare yourself then? Well, I have a regular routine prior to something like this. So, I would get up. I would because I've got a gym in my garage. I would do a gym session in the garage, and then I'd go for a long run, and I'd reset, and it just put me in the great mindset to be able to to speak and be completely present throughout the interview. What does it feel like inside your brain today? Today, wow. It is really, it's sort of muddled and it's not clear. Um, if you think of it as a really old radio station um, machine that, you know, they're trying to find the ABC on on the radio and instead of going straight to that station, it's sort of, you know, a few a few numbers down or a few numbers up, so it's quite fuzzy. That's sort of the best way I can explain it. It's a fuzzy sort of a feeling. It's a little bit unknown. It's daunting. It's a little bit scary. But you've really just got to focus on the present and control your emotions in the present and, fingers crossed, you can get through the day every day. You grew up on the northern beaches of Sydney. Did you have a lot of energy as a kid? Oh, I was a super hyperactive <laughs> child. Like I had a twin brother. Him and I, he and I were very, very competitive. You know, I went to Corpus Christi and St Ives um, as a primary school and we were enrolled in little athletics. Um, we had a hell of a lot of games on the front driveway playing basketball and we played till the till the ends of the end of the evening and my mum would call us in for dinner 
and that's the only way we, we'd leave. <laughs> and it just went on day after day after day. Yeah, it's just a very high, high, high energy child. Um, what about rugby? Were you a rugby mad family? We weren't, not at all. We were, like my twin brother and I, my older brother, we all played soccer, you know, and we didn't even know about rugby and we didn't even think about the word. We didn't know it. How, so, did, how did that change so radically then? Well, I went to St Joseph's College in Hunters Hill and it's on, at that stage it was an all-boys boarding school and uh, they make make you play uh, rugby union from year seven. So you can do whatever you want in year eight, nine and ten and so forth. You can play, you know, you can play soccer or all rugby. You've got that choice during winter. But in year seven it's uh, it's compulsory to play rugby union. So that's how it did. And then all of a sudden my world was open and then my whole rugby journey started. How did boarding school suit you, the the routine and the, the regulation? What was that like for you as a, as a teenager? Yeah, well, I was 11 years old and it was very daunting walking, walking into a dormitory full of 50 people that you've never met before. And everyone was sort of quiet and pretty reserved. And then eventually after two or three days, you realise that you depend on them and they depend on you. So the guards sort of went down and everyone started to, uh, to openly talk and, and it literally just went from there. But the day-to-day discipline was very regimented. You needed to get up straight away. As soon as the lights came on, you'd get up straight away. You'd try to get, get a quick shower, but there's always a line-up and then you'd... Um, You've got to be at breakfast at a certain time. You've got to be at class at a certain time. And then after school, you've got, you know, your, your sporting commitments. And then potentially you have the time, if you get lucky, you can call your parents um, on the payphone. Did you have your twin there with you? Was that a kind of bond that you could, could carry with you through boarding school? He was with me, but they deliberately... Uh, separate the twins, if anyone's a twin. He put him inside. He was in dorm A and I was in dorm B. And the fact that I didn't have him there made me depend on everyone else. And I didn't have my twin brother. And it went through the classrooms as well. He was in a different class. I was in a different class. And it was it was really hard. So we didn't really have much time together. St Joseph's is a, a Catholic school, Michael. But how much is rugby its true religion, do you think? Yeah, everyone, everyone loved rugby and there was a few that played obviously soccer in year eight and it's just rugby was just so highly followed. So there were definitely perks at, at school for, for being good at rugby, hey? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I, I think these days it would be a little bit different um, but certainly back when I was there, it uh, if you played in the first 15, you were sort of, uh, you know, walking on water in terms of how everyone else looked at you um, and looked up to you. When you began playing rugby, you were given the position of breakaway or or flanker. What makes that such an important position in the team? Well, well, it's an interesting question. I, when I first started playing rugby, I wasn't breakaway. I played for the 12 A's. Coach Jim Lloyd said said I was fast, so they they put me on the wing, they put me in the centres, they put me at fullback, and then... In when I was under in the under 13s, um, the head coach put me a breakaway, and then I found my position for life. But what that what that uh, position means for you is that you're very in between the forwards and the backs. Um, you got to be able to, you know, clean out the ruck, secure your own ball. You got when they've got the ball, you've got to try and get it over and and turn the ball over. It's a high energy work rate, and um, you know, a lot of tackling, a lot of ball carrying, and it's uh, it's just one of those positions where you can actually put your your head into um, places where people wouldn't have even put their feet. Hmm. So head contact was was a lot higher for the people in those positions. And you weren't as big as some of the other other boys. What was it that made you such a good fit for that role? Oh, oh look, I think it's just my energy. You know, and the fact that I was a little bit fearless, and having those two combinations is a very difficult, very, 
um, dangerous uh, mix, isn't it? Mm. You know, so. Did you wear headgear at school, Michael? I did. My mum made me wear headgear. She was like, you're not playing rugby unless you wear headgear. So I said, okay. How did that affect your playing, do you think? I think it just gave me more confidence. Absolutely. I'd fly into anything because I thought I was indestructible. So were you knocked out playing rugby even as a schoolboy? I can't recall exactly that simply because I don't remember, but I would have suffered so many sub-concussions. And was that something uh, that you, your coaches or referees talked to you and, and other teenage players about, the damage that can come from those sub-concussions? No, not at all. No one even knew about the words really concussion and um, sub-concussions in those days. You know, players, certainly, boys, students, teachers, they weren't talking about that all, all through the 90s. You know, they weren't talking about any of that. Were you dreaming of turning professional after high school? Is that what you were hoping? Yeah, yeah. Look, absolutely. I mean, as soon as I finished school, I was uh, I was picked up straight away into the uh, the under nineteens New South Wales squad, and I'm really good friends with George Smith. And George, uh, he was basically on the brink of playing the Wallabies anyway at eighteen, and he signed with the uh, ACT Brumbies, and then played for Australia and since sort of then I was like, this is what I want to do. You know, I saw a good friend living a great life and doing a, playing a sport that he really loves and I just said, this is what I really want to do and, you know, I, I held a couple of other jobs like a bartender and a bit of labouring but in reality I just desperately wanted to be a professional rugby player. Well, at 21, you got an offer from the English club Bristol and you flew to the UK just after 9-11. What happened when you arrived at Heathrow? <laughs> um, look, I was a little bit... I was, a, I was a young boy. I, you know, 21, I wasn't really a man, I guess. But, look, I, I arrived at Heathrow and there were... So many camera crews and journos, they're all there, like, and they come up to me straight away. And they're like, how was the flight? You know, were there any dangerous sort of signs or, you know, was there anything happening on the flight that made you be a little bit scared? And I said, I said, no, no, it was really good, thanks. Um, and I'm really excited to be joining Bristol. I can't <laughs> wait to join the likes of uh, Jason Little and Augustine Picio, Felipe Contempomi. Like, I really can't wait to go there. <laughs> And, uh, and and begin my professional career. And the journalist that was interviewing me just looked at the cameraman and the cameraman, they just basically walked off. <laughs> and I thought, what the hell? And the guys that were picking me up, so they had the team manager and three of the young boys uh, in the academy to pick me up, they were in stitches. <laughs> So the journalist had gone there as a post 9-11, what's it like to fly again? And you thought that all turned up to greet Michael Littman. They're all Littman. about me. They're all about Michael Littman. <laughs> I don't think you'd be the only 21-year-old to make that kind of mistake, Michael. <laughs> well, everything was done for me, you know. I lived at home. I went to a, I went to a very highly regimented school where everything was done for you and all you needed to do was turn up. So I turn, all of a sudden rock up to England and... You know, I thought everything's about me, <laughs> how wrong I was. <laughs> One game with Bristol, you were knocked out cold. How did you discover what had happened after? Tell me about watching that video. Well, we had a team review session. So generally on the Mondays after a, a Saturday game, the, the team has sort of like a highlights reel to, to watch the replay of the game, just to learn your mistakes, where you went right and wrong. And, yeah, so they brought that clip up and, um, yeah, it was just really unfortunate. I mean, the, I got knocked out. I tried to get to my feet. I got to my feet and then I fell to the ground again and then started crawling, you know, just totally out of it. And, you know, the, unfor unfortunately the, uh, the coaches, the managers, the players, they all started laughing. So I guess I was sort of like, I was like, <laughs> you know, not enjoying this, mm. but... And I was, I was just flabbergasted. I couldn't believe it. 
I guess know? it was telling you how concussions were going to be treated or were being treated. It, it wasn't serious. In fact, quite the opposite. It was something funny, something to make a joke out of. Look, it was something that people, if they kept going, they kept playing, people thought you were really, really strong and you were, you, you know, you were fearless. I mean, what a, what a player he was. Jeezy got knocked out and then he kept playing. Like, he's a really tough guy. And for me, that's just a, just a complete and utter insult on the words concussion and the, and the dangers of it. After a concussion like that, how long was it until you were allowed to play again? What were the rules? Oh, you could play the next day if you wanted to, you know. It just depends on how you felt. And if your doctor is there in terms of the team club doctor, not an independent doctor, um, if they ask you how are you going how are you going are you are you fit to play i mean a 21 22 year old person that's really ambitious and really wants to get his career going really sort of make his mark within the team you're always going to say yes you do anything you, you do anything you can to get out there and prove yourself you know you then went to bath to play rugby that's the city that that you love and where your playing really flourished Mike Tyndall, who went on to marry Princess Anne's daughter, Zara Phillips, he was playing at Bath too. What got you into trouble at a, a birthday party of Mike Tyndall's? Oh, I, I don't know if I was in trouble. I just got a stern warning. Look, I was... Um, we had Mike Tyndall's um, under, you know, his 21st birthday party and so all the team um, went over there and at the Gloucester Manor. That was just one of their estates of the royal family. Um and everyone was drinking, everyone's having a great time. And, you know, Harry, myself, William, we're all just Harry having a chat. Harry and William, as in Prince Harry and Prince yeah, William. Prince yeah, Prince Harry, <laughs> Prince William, all having fun. And, you know, Harry and I were just mucking around a little bit too much. And I, I jokingly around just got him in a headlock, give him a little, you know, a little scratch on the head as you do. And then all of a sudden this big man, I get this really pressure point hand on my shoulder that borderline paralysed me and he just looked at me and I looked at him and he goes, you can't do that, mate. Fair enough. <laughs> and I was like, fair enough. <laughs> the potential future of king. <laughs> well, you ended up being selected to play for England on a, on a tour of Australia and New Zealand in 2004. Did it feel a bit weird for you, though, as a Northern Beaches boy to be representing England rather than Australia? It was a little bit strange, actually. You know, lining up, singing the anthem, you know, I actually really regret not singing the anthem. You didn't sing God Save the Queen? No, I, look, I, and look, I regret that. I actually, that's probably disrespecting your position. But uh, Joss, Lucy, Joss Lucy was the fullback at the time when I was playing against the All Blacks and he, he stood next to me during the anthems and he looked at me and he said, you better bloody sing this, mate. <laughs> and I... Yeah, so I didn't, and maybe maybe it just have been a reaction to what he said. I don't know, so, but it was bad. Did the English yeah, fans so, let you know how they felt about you not yeah, singing the no, anthem? Yeah, uh, no, I had a few death threats written to uh, to my home in the rugby club, and when we played against Australia, look, I I sang the the national anthem. Um, look, I I was a little bit torn and a little bit young, a little bit naive, a little bit stupid, so. You know, but those mixed feelings, you know, I was born in England, raised in Australia, speak with that very, very um, Aussie sort of an accent. And, yeah, I mean, people always look at me going, Michael, you're the Australian, you know, but you played in England, you followed your dream. People must ask you a lot about your international career. How much can you remember about the games on that tour? Not a great deal. And, look, I haven't watched any replays of my games ever. So I haven't watched any of the, my test matches. I haven't watched any of my games for Bath, Bristol um, by myself and reviewing because I just haven't done it, you know, and I don't know why. I wonder why. Is it is it because it might be too weird to see yourself and, and not remember it? Could that be part of it? Yeah, that could be part of it. I mean, there's, there's regrets in certain things that I've done you know, when I've been playing, I shouldn't have done this, shouldn't have done that. I beat myself up, you know. And even our wedding speech, 
You know, I, I can't bring myself to watch my wedding speech to Francis. I, I get embarrassed. I don't know what it said. Hmm. You know, so do you do you remember what... getting knocks to the head while you were playing at that really top level professional rugby? There's a few occasions where I remember being carried off, stretched off five times in um, in sort of six months within Bath on my last season, hmm. and uh, I remember. Looking to the looking to the sky and putting my hands in the air, just waving to the crowd like I'm okay. Um, but in terms of the the actual games and how I played and what I did, I have no memory whatsoever. Was concussion treated differently? I mean, even maybe less seriously than than physical injuries that you might have sustained while playing. Was that the sort of attitude from the team doctors and coaches? Yeah. The coaches are putting pressure on the on the physios, on the doctors to get these players back as soon as possible because their job is to win and do win at all costs. But in terms of the doctors and the and the medical teams, they always just assess you on how you felt. I mean, they, when I was professional with Bath, they brought in these uh, the cog sport tests, which are baseline tests of you know your reaction time of when a card flips open and what colour it is and. If you pass the baseline test, you were free to play. But prior to that, you just have a consultation with your doctor and they say, how do you feel? Yeah, no, I feel fine. And then you're out there playing, doing contact during uh, training sessions and then the game. Was it something you talked with your teammates about at all, about, you know, the regularity of concussions or those sub-concussive knocks and what they might be doing? No, not at all because... You didn't want to show any sort of weakness to your friends and teammates, you know, because that wasn't the mentality at that at that stage. The mentality was, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to play. You know, I'd, I'd do anything to play. You ended your rugby career back in Australia with the Melbourne Rebels, and you'd been playing rugby professionally for more than ten years by this stage. How was your experience with head knocks changing by that point of your career? At that stage, look, it, it was really, really difficult um, simply because if I sustained a, a concussion, it took me a long time to get over the symptoms. You know, I identified my symptoms but couldn't pinpoint exactly what it was other than being really, really fuzzy. You know, it's a bit cloudy. You know, my head's just not quite right. I'm a little bit imbalanced. I'm finding myself being a little bit ir- irritable you know, a little bit less energetic and just not myself. So, you know, I sustained a few concussions while with the Rebels, but during the last one, it took me nine months to, you know, recover from the symptoms and be symptom-free. And I just thought to myself, what am I doing? I said, if I, if I, keep, if I keep playing, you know, I might not, I might not wake up. You know, your, your brain is like a computer at times. If you drop it too many times, um, the computer might not turn back on. So that was the way I viewed it at that stage, which is why I made the decision to retire because of concussion. Had you thought much, Michael, about what life after rugby might look like? I didn't think about that at any stage, you know, which is very, very silly. You know, I... Uh, I really should have, you know, stayed at uni, did my degree and had something to fall back on. But I didn't know anything. The only thing I knew was how to play professional rugby and, you know, do it, do it to the best of my ability. You know, you can travel the world, you can meet all the people, you, you know, possible. But when it comes to a fine job that you're very skilled at to, to go into after professional sport, it, it just was not on my mind and... Very, very hard to face. That must have been such a loss to your your really deep sense of who you were stepping away from that professional identity, given it had been your whole adult life up to that point. Yeah, I mean, the the transition period between between stopping playing to a job is extremely confronting and very, very difficult for anyone because you are in... When you're playing, you're in the spotlight... Everyone wants to come and talk to you. You feel like a, a great deal of importance that, you know, everyone loves you. You walk down the street and people recognise you, ask, ask you for autographs. You're doing plenty of functions, giving speeches, you know, getting invited to so many different events. 
So basically the day you retire, it's all gone. That's over. So your your ego, you know, your whole self-esteem has gone from hero to zero in the matter of, you know, well, look, I still struggle with it today, you know, in terms of you just go through what's called an identity shift and you, you've got a false identity at the moment because I was Michael Lippmann, the rugby player, and then now I'm Michael Lippmann, the, you know. So that that uh, space of time from retiring to work is absolutely the scariest part of, I reckon, any professional sportsman's life. is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Michael, this period in your life after leaving rugby was challenging, but one bright spark on that transition was falling in love. You hadn't really had the chance for many serious relationships, but who did you meet actually at a rugby league game in, in 2016? Wow. I um, I won't say she, she was the only woman in the box that I was at, but <laughs> yeah, she was. And obviously Frankie is beautiful. So I just went straight up to her and, you know, just got talking and and then at the end of the night, I, I can't believe I did this, I gave her my business card and um, and I took her phone number. But, uh, yeah, we just, after six days, I uh, I contacted her, I just gave her a text, just going, you want to catch up? And, um, yeah, it was pretty soon, I think about three months later, I knew I was just completely head over heels in love with this woman. And... She had a daughter at the time, little beautiful summer queen, and I, I had to choose, do I want a, a, a family, you know, moving forward? And that was a simple decision for me. You know, I wanted the, both of them in my life forever. And, yeah, so we got engaged and, you know, had an amazing honeymoon. But marrying, marrying Francis was the best decision of my life and... I'm just grateful and count my lucky stars every day that she has stuck by me through horrendous episodes of behaviour and, you know, really, really scary events and episodes that that I have done um, due to this condition and she has stuck beside me. Now, we'd be on the brink of divorce and, you know, I'd I'd be dead, I'd be homeless or committed suicide. You know, I, I owe my life to Frankie, pretty much. When you met Frankie, you were trying to build a career in real estate, which is not an uncommon move for former football players. You've got all these contacts. People want to hear these stories of yours. But what was getting tough about the job after the first two years or so? When I really started to notice something was wrong was when I couldn't remember their names. I couldn't I couldn't actually deal with buyers. Um, I was mixing up uh, names with my vendors and my presentation to potential vendors to win some business was was really, really deteriorating. And I just sounded like a bit of an idiot. And then I got really nervous and then I just completely started sweating. And it was it was embarrassing for me and I didn't really know what was going on. At the end of the day, as soon as I'd, I'd get home, I'd probably drank a little bit more than what I should have. Uh, actually, not a little bit more, a hell of a lot more than what I should have and then everything would be okay. So I was just masking the problem. I was masking how I was feeling and that was that was a, basically a tradition I did for, for a few years, you know, three, four nights out of seven. Mm. And what sort of example am I giving... To summer at that age, what what am I doing with the, our relationship with my wife? You know how, so it actually spiraled out of control. What kind of things were happening at home that Frankie was noticing that was was scaring her, making her unsure about what kind of man you were and, and the the behaviour you were showing? 
it was just very erratic, totally impatient, frustrated. I was I'm never a violent person, but oh geez, we had so many arguments basically over nothing because she was so frustrated with me and my actions. And, you know, everyone would be. If you were drinking more than you should have, partly as a, a way to try and cope with the stress of what was happening, I guess, I don't know, were both of you thinking, oh, it must be the alcohol that's making Michael act this way or that's what this is about rather than something else? Exactly, exactly. So after, you know, a couple of years, Frankie just went, geez, I've had enough. You, need, you are not a normal person. The real estate career was falling apart because of the, the issues you were having with, with memory and, and mood control and, and so you sold your place in Sydney and moved to the Central Coast as a way to try and save some money. What was day-to-day life like for you at that point? Like what were you doing for work? How were you trying to bring some money in? I just thought I'd go into real estate again and I'd do it up in, uh, up in the Central Coast. So I had a few meetings with a different uh, with different companies, and it was just I couldn't work it out. They just never gave me a call back after the interview. They didn't even acknowledge any texts or anything like that from me, just a follow up, nothing. So obviously, I just wasn't someone that they'd you know that they'd want to employ. Something I was just saying or not saying or body language or the way I was communicating was just completely off what they wanted. For me, that was really, um, really confronting. I, I just I just could not believe it, you know. And I was like, what am I gonna, what am I gonna do? So I thought about, you know, going going back into serving beers at a pub. I thought about go doing some cleaning. I thought I could just do some labouring. How did that go when you tried helping out a mate with some labouring? Well, like I, I'm a very hard worker, so I, I never really minded what they wanted me to do and my, my body was actually okay. What about following instructions or directions? How was that? Well, planning, I just, planning and following directions have to be very specific and I didn't tell the employers or, you know, at the time the site managers, I didn't, t- I didn't tell them that they need to be very specific and there were times when I've you know, cleaned out offices, which is what the site manager wanted me to do. And I just grabbed everything, even the keys to everyone's apartment. There's a spare keys to everyone's apartment. I threw it in the bin because I thought if he wants everything out of the room, then I'm just going to throw everything out of the room into the skip bin. And so I did that. And then the project manager, a couple of days later, were like, where are the keys? I've got to get, I've got to give all the spare sets to, to the owners. And, oh, my God, didn't I get it? You know, subsequently I got sacked a couple of months later. Anyway. What about a trip to the supermarket? What was that like? I still struggle with it today. It's, uh, it's so... gives me so much anxiety. You know, as soon as I pull up into the car park, I know I'm going in there. And I've been there so many times. I'm just looking for what... What I've been given is a list from Frankie and I just can't find it. And then I'm walking up and down the corridor like an absolute idiot. And, you know, it, it, it does get, you know, really embarrassing in the time when I've got to ask, you know, the staff there saying, where are the, uh, you know, where's the salad? You know, where's the broccoli? Where's the piece of meat? And every time that I've had to do it, it's been pretty much right in front of me. I just couldn't find it, you know, so... That's so embarrassing for me. Like I'm 42 and it must, can't do the simple things in life. It like must that. have felt incredibly confusing too. Like we must have thought, what's wrong with me? What's what on earth's going on? I was just like, oh god, like what is happening in my head? I don't know what, what I don't know. I'm I'm out of control. And I'm not in control of myself. Then another former professional rugby player, Alex Poppin from Wales, he got in touch with you and said he'd been diagnosed with a degenerative brain condition called CTE. And he was describing symptoms like memory loss and concentration failure and balance issues, all these sorts of things that you'd been experiencing. And he said you should go and get yourself checked out by a a neuroscientist, a, a neuropsychologist. Tell me about that process of, of going and visiting a neurologist at Macquarie University, Dr Rowena Mobbs, what, what happened when you went to see her? Well, she 
referred me to a lady named Jennifer Bachelor, who is a neuropsychologist, and she's the one that undergoes uh, the uh, neuropsychological assessment. So that was the most confronting, embarrassing three hours of my life. You know, I cried, I laughed, I was trying to solve puzzles, I was trying to repeat words and numbers that she'd say, and I couldn't do it. At some stage, you know, I just com- just got up and left the room. And that was really, really hard. Mm. And, you know, the results of that went back to Dr. Marina Mobs. And, you know, from there we were able to act, to get the correct medication to deal with a lot of the symptoms that I was having. And, and what so, diagnosis were you given out of those tests? I was given early onset dementia and having probable CTE. And CTE is a, a degenerative brain condition that can only be confirmed with an autopsy after death. So it's, it's just, it's only ever given as, as a probable diagnosis. But the symptoms of CTE are all the things you were experiencing and it's very strongly linked to repeated head trauma, like the kind you get by being a rugby player. So, Michael, I'm thinking of you at age 40 being told that you've got this degenerative brain condition, CTE, and dementia. What was it like for you and Frankie to to get that diagnosis? Well, Frankie was putting it all together saying... Now this explains exactly why he's been behaving the way he has and he can't control it or he couldn't control it because he didn't didn't know, you know. And the way I felt, I was was in denial. I was like, it can't be, it can't be, it can't be. And I was really confused for some time. And I was like, well, I'm still, I'm still me, aren't I? Aren't I still me? And she's like, no, you're not. I said, okay, so you've known me over, you know, the course of about four years. She said, you're totally different now to what you were back then. And I went, oh, God. So then I was even more embarrassed. Um, And once you started to accept it, which probably took about about nine to 12 months of accepting it, realising you've got an issue and you need to get yourself treated and looked after because you're going to lose everything. You're going to lose your wife, you're going to lose your family, you're going to lose everything. So it was an easier decision for me, so I got some help. And for some former players, lose their lives because CTE, which is associated with impulsivity, there's a tragic number of former players suffering the condition who have taken their own lives. Can you understand that? Yeah, once again, it's um, it's a condition that generate some feelings of, geez, it'd be easier just to kill myself because I'm such a burden on my family and I don't bring anything to the table. You know, everyone looks at me and goes, oh, geez, I've got this disease and I've got dementia syndrome. Oh, like, I'm a waste of of space. I may as well just go, you know, and put everyone else at rest. So that's the way that they're thinking and it's very very hard to sort of snap yourself out of it but a great way of dealing with that is what myself and Dr Rowena Moz have created and it's called a concussion connect and it's a group of uh, a group of people that are showing similar signs and symptoms of CTE or brain just head trauma in general and we get together once every couple of months and we have a therapy meeting. So I lead that because I'm the youngest person there and we just talk about events that have happened recently, how they've sort of dealt with their behaviour and frustration levels and then we actually all give each other, you know, a little bit of encouragement and ways to sort of deal with that if it happens again and Anyone that comes there always leaves afterwards. It goes for about two hours. Everyone leaves feeling better Mm. because they're able to have a a genuine conversation with people that aren't judging you at all and that are on the same level as you. So it's, um, 
it's like the monkeys off your back. You've you've actually you can relax in this in this seminar. Hmm. And and when yeah. you hear other people's stories, is it's something that you can relate to? You you it feels parallel lines to what you've been going through. Yeah, I mean, when when one when the patients are saying and speaking about a certain event that's happened and and they've lost control, all I do as a as the leader of that group is number one, put them at ease, and they're not alone, and it's happened before. How did you deal with it and how how can we deal with it if it happens again? And just having that role within that group gives me a, a, a huge feeling of, of purpose. You know, I have a purpose and I'm doing that to the best of my ability, you know, and that's with Concussion Connect. I'm also the ambassador for uh, Progressive Rugby over in England and I am the ambassador for the Australian CTE Biobank which is a research facility for CTE and uh, and that's in Australia. So having those three sort of titles as well as I do a little, little bit of public speaking, you know, and I'll do as much as I can for, uh, for our business, gives me a great sense of purpose and I love my family and my, my role at, at home, my stay-at-home roles, I just love it, you know, doing it as much as I can because poor Frankie... Is working from six a.m. in the morning until eight eight o'clock at night. Like she's just nonstop, mm. you know. And the carers of people with CTE and other head trauma issues, the carers that look after them, you know, a lot of people get divorced. A lot of people break up because of it, you know. So they're very very strong people that look after these uh, these unfortunate people. So when you you got that diagnosis and, as you say, it took you a while to kind of come to terms with it and what it might mean. What could your doctors tell you about what your future might look like? They didn't say a word about that. They didn't say, look, you know, this is a progressive disease, this is what potentially could happen at this time and that. It was very much a day-to-day thing but what I did, I took sort of matters in my own hands, I did the courses uh, of dementia. So online I did preventing dementia, I did understanding dementia, understanding traumatic brain injury. So doing those three courses online really gave me an education into what is happening in in my brain and what I could actually expect in the years to come. And that gave me a lot of alarm, like it was very alarming to me as well. But it also taught me to just to really live in the pe- in the presence and g- give gratitude to what you have at the moment. You know, you've got a beautiful family, you've got an amazing wife, you've got a you've got a roof over your head, you've got food in your stomach, and having those amazingly simple things in life is my world. What changes did you make in in your life after getting that diagnosis? Yeah, the number one thing I I do is. Uh, is try and get as much routine in your life as possible, particularly the way that you start the day. You know, if you start the day with a bit of exercise, it always sets you up for for being in a good mood, I think, or that works for me. Um, Adjusting your medication to to what you need. Can I ask, Michael, is that, you know, is that mood medication or what kind of medication is given for CC? Look, yeah, so sodium valparate is one of the medications that I'm on, which is a mood stabiliser. So that, if you take it correctly, can um, can just make you the right mood. But it just depends on every individual. Everyone's different, and I I feel the more the more things you can do within the day, the the busier you are, the better. I think the hardest times for anyone with my you know my condition is to sit on the couch and just watch TV movies all day and just feel sorry for them for themselves. I mean, there were times where I was just lying in my room, in my bed, and I did—I couldn't get out of bed for days. And Frankie couldn't understand it. I couldn't understand it. I just didn't want to leave the bed, simply because that was my safe zone. I was safe in there. I knew if I if I left, I'd say something silly, or I'd do something wrong, or I'd embarrass someone. I just stayed in my room because that was my safe place, and 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 that's what a lot of people are going through these days. One of the reasons Alex Popham had got in touch with you is 
he invited you to join a class action that uh, is happening in the UK seeking compensation from international rugby authorities. Where are things at with that now? I mean, the only the only response that we've had from World Rugby is that CTE and other brain injuries are caused by social problems like smoking and drinking. Mm. And that is the only statement that they've made. And I'll just quote my neurologist, Dr. Mobs. She said that is medical gaslighting. Mm. And it just goes to show the lack of care and the actual lack of attention that they're giving to the subject of concussion and repetitive head trauma and what it can do to people and the eventual life that can they can live post their their career. In your own life you made the decision that drinking was wasn't helping that the amount of drinking you were doing was exacerbating the symptoms you were getting from this early onset dementia and and from yeah. the CTE. Tell me about going into the mental health clinic because it's so courageous. Yeah, no, thank you. Well, I walked in there and I was like a like a rabbit in headlights. I was like, oh, my God, what is happening here? And I went straight into my room and they just they checked my vitals and did all that. And then I went and got something to eat and they went straight back into my room. And, you know, we'd go through meetings throughout the day addiction issues or, you know, lifestyle issues and, and, and just sort of tried to keep myself busy. So I did a lot of work on myself. But there's not m that many times where you actually have time to yourself and there's only so much you can call the people around you before you're looking yourself in the mirror saying to yourself, who am I now? How do people perceive me now? Who do I want to be? And what does the future hold for me? And you've got to make a decision. And your priorities are either this or they're that. You can either have a, have a priority of, you know, drinking yourself to death or living a, a life taking drugs or whatnot, you know. But on the other side, you've got amazing family, being a stay-at-home dad, being very, very happy with that. And... That time in the mental health clinic was very, very confronting and, you know, I was sad because I was shamed. I was, in, I was there in shame and it was really, really hard. I broke down a couple of times to Frankie and, you know, I, I just said, oh, my God, I can't believe I've done what I've done, you know, and you're still stuck by me. I got so emotional. But that was the best thing I've ever done hmm. in terms of how... It has changed my life because I've worked out what I what I want to do, where I want to be, how I'm going to do it. And alcohol is just a it's an acceleration of your brain brain issues. So if you can go to the pub and you can have a couple of drinks here and there, that's okay. But when you're binge drinking and giving yourself masses amounts of alcohol, um, you're doing nothing but harm. And that was an easy decision for me, just to, just to not drink anywhere near as much. But I'll, I'll happily sit at dinner and I'll have like half a glass of red wine or I'd go to the pub, you know, and watch a race and I'll have a, I'll have a beer and then I'll go home, you know. So everything in moderation, everything relaxed. Enjoy your time with your family because the other option is not the option you want to go down. You're making all these positive changes and you have been ever since you got the diagnosis. Are you aware of things changing, of things getting tougher or do you feel you've kind of, I don't know, reached a new reality with, with how things are day to day? Yeah, it certainly is a reality now. For me, acceptance was the hardest but the best thing um, I could have done for myself. You know, like having a purpose is something you really wake up and you look forward to. You know, you want to hug your son, you want to hug your daughter, you want to have a great time with, you know, with your wife, you want to make a coffee, you want to make a breakfast, you know, and do so the same thing for the kids, you know, walk the dogs, feed the dogs. And, you know, you want to, you want to be that guy with a smile on your face. And that, for me, it's just amazing. I mean, we have dinner at the dinner table and then we have a beautiful, sometimes we put music on 
and we all have a dance around together as a family where people can't see. And those those events and things that happen, they're just priceless for me. And, you know, sometimes I get a little bit emotional about them simply because I'm so proud and happy that I've got these people in my life, you know. You must get asked this a lot and I guess you've asked yourself this. If you had your time again, would you still play rugby? No, I wouldn't. Not at this stage, no. Simply because the game, rugby union in particular, they're still covering it up. They're still getting players back out there. They're still getting players to play on. There's still there's still journalists and there's still people that speak on, you know, national uh, national TV saying, you know, we're not doctors. You've got to trust a doctor's opinion. But the, clearly the player's been knocked out and they're still allowed to play. I mean, I just don't understand. Like, there's negligence everywhere, you know, across the world in the majority of contact sports. And it's just... It's just so sad because people are actually thinking about it and they're, they're talking about how much it's changed and how much they're doing to, to promote the fact that they don't want, you know, these conditions to happen in the future. They're trying to say that they're doing it, but they're not. Players are still playing on after getting knocked. They're just getting quickly assessed. Yep, yep, how do, the, how do you feel? You're all right. You're walking properly. Yep, you're all right. You go through the questions. You're answering correctly. Yeah, you must be fine. In reality, they know they're not fine. Michael, thank you for telling your story on Conversations. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Michael Lippman was my guest today, and the book he's written with his wife, Frankie, is simply called Concussion. And the support organisation Michael co-founded is Concussion Connect. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.